let's take our hymn books and turn to hymn number 176. Break thou the bread of life, dear Lord, to me. Break thou the bread of life, dear Lord, to me. As thou didst break the loaves beside the sea, beyond the sacred page, I seek thee, Lord. My spirit pants for thee, O living word. Bless thou the truth, dear Lord, to me, to me. As thou didst bless the bread by Galilee, then shall all bondage cease, all fetters fall, and I shall find my peace, my all in all. Thou art the bread of life, O Lord, to me. Thy holy word, the truth that saveth me. Give me to eat and live with thee above. Teach me to love thy truth, for thou art love. Oh, send thy spirit, Lord, now unto me, that he may touch my eyes and make me see. Show me the truth concealed within thy word, and in thy book revealed I see the Lord. The truth, it could be a capital T, concealed in thy word. That's Christ. He's the truth. He's the word. He is all of Scripture. Let's take our Bibles and continue our reading commentary in the book of Zechariah. And we'll be considering this entire second chapter, Zechariah chapter 2. So here we have Zechariah given a call. For those that had been exiled 70 years in Babylon, now to return to the land. That's what time of the era that he was, post-exile. And so let's read verses 1 through 5. He said, I lifted up mine eyes again and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then said I, Whither goest thou? And he said unto me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what is the breadth thereof, and what is the length thereof, 
And behold, the angel that talked with me went forth, and another angel went out to meet him, and said unto him, Run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls for the multitude of men and cattle therein. For I, saith the Lord, will be unto her a wall of fire round about, and will be the glory in the midst of her. So it speaks here of a man with a line in his hand, and when asked where he's going, it's to measure Jerusalem. And when you get to verse 3, it says, And behold, the angel that talked with me went forth. The word angel can also be translated as messenger. And quite often in the Old Testament where you see the angel, that's a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. And the reason I say that is when we get down to verse 5, because we have this first angel or messenger giving another angel instruction. It says, another angel went out to meet him and said unto him, so the angel said unto him, run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited. And notice in verse 5, for I saith the Lord. So who is it that's speaking? That's the Lord. I will be unto her a wall of fire round about and will be the glory in the midst of her. So here we have, I believe, this man being none other than the angel of the Lord and a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. It is as, it's as if the, the man with a measuring line went out and started measuring what Jerusalem would become. This was after it had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon and declared that the city would be inhabited as towns without walls. And we know that's exactly what happened. First of all, the people came back from exile and dwelt in that city. But remember, Nehemiah had to be raised up at some point to go back and encourage the rebuilding of the walls. So they were living in a city that had been ruined 70 years prior, but now they were slowly coming back. Not everybody came back. There were some that remained up in Babylon. They'd made houses there and had their families there, and they stayed there. But others were directed to come back. And so in the short term, this particular prophecy here was fulfilled. And it's so important when you study the scriptures, context, context, context is everything. And this had to do with the rebuilding work then of the city that would take place under Ezra and Nehemiah. And remember I said these books are not in chronological order. We're back here in Zechariah, and yet he would have been contemporary with Ezra and Nehemiah. And yet there is... Here in verse 5, a prophecy that looks beyond even 
their day when he says, I, saith the Lord, will be unto her a wall of fire round about her, and will be what? The glory in the midst of her. So the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem at that time, and ultimately the temple, was that Christ should come several hundred years later and be the glory in the midst of her. When he would enter into that temple, the glory of the Lord entered in. And that's why the Lord purposed that it should be rebuilt. So verses 6 and 7, we see here where the exiles are exhorted to return. It says, Ho, ho, come forth and flee from the land of the north, saith the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heaven, saith the Lord. Deliver thyself, O Zion, that dwellest with the daughter of Babylon. So there he's speaking to the remnant that's still up in Babylon. And he's letting them know that it's time to come back. Remember, the Lord raised up Cyrus, who was the Persian king, that gave the decree that they should go back and rebuild Jerusalem. And even provided funding for the rebuilding of the city and the temple. That's an amazing thing when you think a pagan king like Cyrus who had just conquered Babylon. And yet the Lord purposed that through him the decree should go forth. That's a reminder that God is sovereign over all. And everything lives, moves, and has its being in him. But here the call is to flee the Northland, which would be if you look on the map, that's where current day Babylon would be, where current day Iraq is. And uh, to come back into the land of Israel. But, as I said, some of the exiles were comfortable in Babylon and refused to come. And we don't know ultimately whether they just died then in uh, that land. There may have been some among them that were the Lord's. I know Daniel never returned. He remained and, and died, as far as we know, there in Babylon. Doesn't mean he wasn't the Lord's. But here the call was for the remnant to come back. And therefore, the, the call is there to escape. You know, Babylon is used in Scripture as a type of false religion. So the call would be to come out of false religion. God took them there in judgment because of their idolatry initially, but now it was time to return. And then verses 8 and 9, we have here the reasons for rejoicing. When God gives a call, there's a reason to rejoice. And so verses 6 through 9, God promises to protect those that are his. It says, in uh, verse 8, let's, let's go on down because we already did 6 and 7. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, after the glory hath he sent me unto the nations which spoiled you. For he that toucheth you toucheth the apple of his eye. For behold, I will shake mine hand upon them, and they shall be a spoil to their servants. And ye shall know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me. Here he says, he who touches the apple of his eye, that phrase, apple of the eye, that's the pupil. 
of the eye. And we know that if any kind of object goes toward your eye, boy, there's a blink to protect it. And that's how the Lord describes those that are precious to him, even though he had taken them into judgment those 70 years, there was a remnant that was precious to him and that he purposed to bring back. He had preserved them all the way through those 70 years, and now he would keep them in uh, coming back. It says there, they shall become spoiled for their servants. God promises that those who enslaved the people of God, that's, that's who he's talking about. He's talking about the Babylonians, that they would become spoiled for their servants, that uh, God would cause them actually to serve the purpose of those that he brings back. The enslavers themselves would become enslaved. And that was ultimately fulfilled when the Lord completely destroyed the nation of Babylon. He said, I'll shake my hand against them. There again is a reminder that God is sovereign in everything that takes place in the world. The raising up of nations, the putting down of nations. And when those nations are shaken like we see around us today, many nations being shaken, our, our own included, who's doing the shaking? It's God. God is shaking out. He's going to separate out the wheat from the chaff. But any that are his people, he will keep and preserve. And then verses 10 through 13, what's the greatest blessing that a nation could ever have? Well, it's the promise of the presence of the Lord. It's not material success, economic success, political success. No, it's the presence of the Lord. And so he says, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord. And many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in the midst of thee, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto thee. And the Lord shall inherit, who? Judah, his portion in the holy land, and shall choose Jerusalem again. Be silent, O all flesh, before the Lord, for he is raised up out of his holy habitation. I believe that ultimately, when he says here in verse 11, many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day. Well, what day? Well, it says here in verse 10, the day that he comes and dwells in the midst of them. Well, when did he come and dwell in the midst of them? This was forward-looking to the time when Christ would come and tabernacle among them. And it would be not only for a Jewish remnant, but when he says there, many nations shall be joined to the Lord, what happened on the day of Pentecost when there were many there from all those different nations that came to the feast days, and yet the Spirit of God was poured out and they were drawn to Christ. I believe that is what's being described there. Right here in verse 12 is the only time in all of Scripture that we see this expression, the Holy Land. But boy, is that popular today. Everybody wants to talk about the Holy Land. They think it's 
talking about that land being holy. But the word holy there actually means to be set apart and consecrated unto that which is holy. Why did God preserve that land to begin with? Why did he bring this remnant back into the land after the 70 years of captivity? Well, it's because it was consecrated to the Lord. Why did God cause the temple to be rebuilt at that time by Zerubbabel? Why did he preserve them? It wasn't for anything in Israel. They were just as evil as they are today. But God had set it apart in purpose that in that land, in that place, would be where he would send his son. And that's why he chose Jerusalem, because it would be a type and picture of the heavenly Jerusalem. There's a heavenly city that represents the body of Christ. That's the, the city that Abraham sought, whose builder and maker was God. He lived in tents all his life. But God gave him faith to look for that city whose builder and maker is God, speaking of Christ and his church. And so be silent all, all flesh before the Lord. See, this is the Lord's doings. And he is raised up out of his holy habitation. He's talking about his holy habitation and glory. But he's raised up in the sense of accomplishing on earth what he has purposed and all of this to his honor and glory. What a great portion. Gracious Father, I thank you for your word. Be our teacher, I pray, and open our eyes to see the wonders of Christ throughout. Even as Zechariah was raised up to prophesy in that day and to call forth a people that you had preserved for your name and honor to come back and to rebuild the city and uh, that that temple should once again be a place of worship until Christ came and fulfilled it all. He didn't just set aside the law or the Old Testament sacrifices and priesthood, but he fulfilled it so that today he is that high priest ascended on high and uh, representing everyone for whom he paid the debt. I'm thankful to be of that number, to have that hope by your spirit of grace. And I know that's the case for others that you've been pleased to draw. So we give you the honor and praise and glory and ask that you would meet with us. That's our greatest blessing is your presence through your word and through, by your spirit in Christ. Give you the praise and honor and glory in his precious name. Amen. 282, hiding in thee. Oh, safe to the rock that is higher than I. My soul in its conflicts and sorrows would fly. So sinful, so weary, thine, thine would I be. Thou blessed rock of ages, I'm hiding in thee, hiding in thee, hiding in thee. Thou rock of ages, I'm hiding in thee.
in the calm of the noontide, in sorrow's lone hour, in times when temptation casts o'er me its power, in the tempests of life, on its wide heaving sea, thou blessed rock of ages, I'm hiding in thee, hiding in thee, hiding in thee, thou blessed rock of ages. I'm hiding in thee. How oft in the conflict, when pressed by the foe, I have fled to my refuge and breathed out my woe. How often when trials like sea billows roll, have I hidden in thee, O thou rock of my soul, hiding in thee, hiding in thee, thou rock of ages I'm hiding in thee what a comforting song I know that Christ is that rock of ages left for me well look with me in your Bible to Revelation chapter 1 and my text is in verse 5 and I want to speak with you about Jesus as the faithful witness We've been going alphabetically through the different titles of Christ in Scripture. We went quite quickly through the E's, and now we're into F, Jesus as the faithful witness. And here in verse 5 of Revelation 1, it says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And we can continue on, verse 6, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, verses, if you go up to verse 4, we have here a, a greeting from the Apostle John. He was on the Isle of Patmos being persecuted for the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he describes later in verse 9. And he's writing to the churches of the first century to encourage them in the face of persecution. A lot of people miss that when they come to the book of Revelation. They think that it's all talking about future times and seasons and yet to come. And yet, if you look up there in verse 1, 
it says the revelation of Jesus Christ. So please get this right. It's not revelations. I hear a lot of people say, turn to revelations. There's only one revelation. And it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants, and notice, things which, which must, doesn't just say come to pass, but which must shortly come to pass. It's like Christ when he came the first time and went about preaching the kingdom of God. He said, repent for the kingdom is what? At hand. That meant it was there. He'd come to establish the kingdom. And so here is John, and he's writing, it says in verse 4, to the seven churches which are in Asia. So these are actual churches where the gospel had been established, and there were believers in these locations, as you read on ahead in Revelation 2 and following. But he says, Grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. We know that there's but one spirit, but the book of Revelation uses numbers as types and symbols. And so in the symbolic sense, the word seven means oneness or complete. So it's talking about the spirit of God. So here he's writing to these seven churches in Asia. And that would be in what was the Roman province of Asia, probably in an area that when we look at where these churches were, would be in the western part of modern-day Turkey, if you look on a map. But you can see building up to verse 5, describing that this is from Jesus Christ. This revelation, as it says up there in verse 1, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants. What John is declaring here was by revelation. And you can see how he's described. John had been a witness of Christ in the flesh. Over in his epistle, he talks about whose hands had touched the, the living word and uh, had seen and enjoyed his presence. And now he was ascended into glory. And yet, he's not removed from what is taking place on earth. Nothing happens but what it comes through the hand of him who is seated on that throne. Whether it's calamity, whether it's times of peace or war, all of these things, Christ is directing from his throne in heaven. It's not that he's waiting to come back one day and reign. No, he's reigning already on earth from heaven. And he's described here by John as him who is. He's the great I am. That's what I am means, who is. When it says there also, which was, I don't think it's saying that now he is no more. He is and the one which was. He always has been. That's from the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he said, who is to come? 
And that's what this book of Revelation is about. Everything that was to take place, particularly in that first century, while Christ from his throne was exercising his will. And we know he did come in power and glory in 70 AD. He didn't come back to the earth, but he came and destroyed that city of Jerusalem from heaven. And then as you read on in Revelation, ultimately, we await his coming again. So that's what leads up now to this declaration then of Christ being the faithful witness. He's called the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth. All of that's vital to understanding who is he as the faithful witness. It's connected with his resurrection, the firstborn from the dead, and it's connected to his ruling and reigning now over the kings of the earth. So John here is bringing a literal greeting to these churches from the Son of God. What a blessing it is for us to have this word open and to have this same greeting to us who are his redeemed from the Son of God. And when he says here he's the faithful witness, I believe this speaks to him as being trustworthy because he is when the call of the gospel is to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's trustworthy. But here specifically, he's the faithful witness to his father that the father sent him into this world to accomplish a work. And he would never have returned to his father had that work not been accomplished. You say, well, what was his work? It was to come to redeem and to justify every sinner that the Father gave him before the foundation of the world. And that's why he came. He was faithful even unto death, even the death of the cross. In fact, the ancient Greek word translated witness here literally means martyr. Now we know that Christ was not a mere martyr in his death, but it does speak of death. We talk about a martyr, it's somebody that's died. But he didn't die as natural men die. Had he not been put on that cross and executed by his father, and it was an execution because it was a representation, he was to die on behalf of, of people the father had given him, he never would have died. And so that's why he's called here the firstborn from the dead. This speaks of the Lord Jesus standing as preeminent among all beings, the firstborn from the dead. He is the first in priority would be the way to understand that. Or firstborn from the dead in the sense that he's the only one who died and rose again and never died again. You think of Lazarus, well, he was raised from the grave and yet he had to die again. So in that sense, he was the first in priority and preeminence among all those who would be resurrected. What this speaks of here 
Because in John's writing, there's people dying. Persecution was increasing. And there's never been a time of persecution against Christ's church like it was in that first century. And I've mentioned to you different books you can go and read, The Martyrs of the Catacombs, or even reading Josephus' account of what the believers endured in that first century. So this would have been a message of hope to them that were they to die, there was one that had already preceded them, not only dying but raising again. And that's why Paul wrote there in 1 Corinthians 15, you take out the resurrection of Christ, you, ha you have nothing. The gospel is as much about the resurrection of Christ as it is his dying. You can't separate the two. He was delivered for our transgressions, is what Paul wrote to the Romans, and raised again for or because of our justification. The fact that God raised him from the grave is proof positive then that when he died, those that he represented in his death were justified. It's not justified when you believe. No, it was justified when Christ rose from the grave. And those for whom he died and rose again in time, the Spirit reveals Christ in them. And when their eyes are open, that's where they look. They look to his death and what he accomplished. And yet the firstborn here, when he uses this term, it's and even with a faithful witness, you can see it, it's with regard to his sovereignty and his rule and authority over all things. And he's made us kings, it says in verse 6, and priests unto God. A kingdom of priests. In the Old Testament, the priests serve the high priest. Well, that's what we do. We serve him who is our high priest. And to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's not this namby-pamby Jesus that's being preached today that really would like to save people, but he can't unless you let him. What kind of Jesus is that? No, he's a sovereign Lord. And so let's take a look at this faithful witness now that we have a little bit of the context. Number one, as I said, it is true that when you read that faithful witness, you have in it the sense that he's trustworthy because he is the truth. Faithful is one that is the truth. And we know that that's the very essence of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. I am the way, he said, the truth and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. So just as God is true and the truth, so Christ is. Over in Titus chapter 1 and verse 2, if you look there with me in your Bible, you'll see that this is his character as God. With regard to us, you know, we like to talk about people being faithful witnesses to Christ. There's none of us faithful. Let God be true and every man a liar is what the scriptures say. That's, that's who we are, but he is faithful. Notice here in Titus chapter 1, 
Paul writing says, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ according to the faith of God's elect. The faith there has to do with the revelation of Christ in the gospel, and that's the faith of God's elect. That's that faith that is granted to those by the Spirit of God that God has, cho has cho chosen. And the acknowledging of what? The truth. In other words, of him who is the truth, which is after godliness. How is it that we are made godly or godlike? Well, it's not in our being, but it's in our representative, the Lord Jesus Christ. It says in verse 2, in hope of eternal life, notice, which God that cannot lie. A faithful witness is somebody that cannot lie promised even before the world began, but hath in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior. So him being the faithful witness, he is the perfect representation of truth. That's how he came to this earth. The law came by Moses, but John said, grace and truth by the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and truth. And so as the visible image of the invisible God, if you want a view of God, just look at Christ. Everything he was in the flesh, whether by grace or truth or justice, everything about him, those attributes of God are manifest in him. And therefore, he is trustworthy. We don't trust this Jesus that men are promoting today, but Christ, the word, the faithful witness, the one to whom to know is to know God himself, he is trustworthy. But is that all there is to it? Should we just close there and say, well, we're done? No, there's... A second thing that we have to understand here in this context, and remember I said that context is everything when you're studying the scriptures. It's all about Christ. But when we're seeking to understand any portion of scripture concerning this faithful witness who is Christ, there are some critical questions that are important for us to ask as we weigh any text. And the first one is who was the author and what did the author purpose to communicate to his audience? That's why here in Revelation, you know, fast forward to modern day interpretations. What did this word mean to those to whom John was writing? How would they have been encouraged and embraced this message? Because it was written concerning things that which must shortly come to pass. But secondly, we have to ask what is the historic context and how would the original recipients have understood the message? That's important. We're not from this culture. And so when we read the scriptures, we have to understand what this would have meant to them, And until we can answer those questions, we're going to oftentimes just pervert 
the scriptures. We know that the book of Revelation is the record that was given to John by revelation while he was there on the Isle of Patmos. That's in verses 9 through 11. You can see I, John, also. I, John, who also am your brother. So he's writing to specific believers in his day and companion in tribulation. He was suffering the same tribulation as they were. And in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, that when it says in the kingdom, that means it was already his kingdom. Even with the tribulation, he was not looking forward to some future kingdom. He was speaking to those who, according to God's purpose, were enduring tribulation. And it says patience of Jesus Christ, the same patience with which our Lord Jesus Christ suffered unto death by his spirit. <clears throat> he told his disciples that. If they hated me, they'll hate you. But fear not, I've overcome the world. The same spirit that was in Christ, he gives to those that he has redeemed. And it's by that spirit that they uphold, that they endure, that they do not go away. And he said, I was in the isle that is called Patmos. Why? For the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and a lot of people, when they read that, they think, oh, I must have been Sunday. No, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day in the sense that if this was the Lord's day in revealing himself to him. In reality, every day is the Lord's day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, not one special day of the week. But it was the day that the Lord purposed to reveal to John this word, and he heard behind he said, I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. So here we have symbolism already, a trumpet sounding. This is the word of Christ. And what did he say? Saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, unto Smyrna, unto Pergamos, unto Thyatira, unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. Those are actual places where there was a gospel congregation, assembly, that was raised up. So as instructed by our Lord, John here is recording for those believers of that day. Now, do we benefit? Yes. But it was written specifically to those of his day. And so... It's crucial for us to understand that in writing, John was addressing this audience that at one point had lived during this time. And they were a particular people facing a particular circumstance, being addressed. And so this is where we have to be careful because the first thing that people are taught today is, well, when you read the scriptures, see what the word is for you. Now let's see what the word is for those to whom it was written. And if the Lord brings an application, so be it. But first of all, like it says, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Anybody that goes through the book of Revelation and does not preach Christ from beginning to end, they've missed it. It's not about times and seasons, but it's about the Lord Jesus Christ. And 
how even through tribulation, he takes care of his own. So John's audience here is a first century, and we could say a Greco-Roman culture, because that's who was in power at that time, the Roman government. They continued to be in power all the way up through several 500 years after this. And the this is where we need to understand the culture. Why is John being so specific here of pointing them to Christ, the faithful witness? Well, it's because the Roman Empire was saturated with all kinds of cultic symbols and images. And what they tried to do was have a God for every situation. It was a multi, a polytheistic empire. But just like in our day, when you get down to describing only one God and one mediator who is the Lord over all, all of a sudden you've got, you got problems because what you're doing is excluding all these others. And that's what people don't like today. They want you to say, well, you can believe in your Jesus and you can believe he's sovereign, but we still have our gods. Nope. There's not any that exist or would exist, but what Christ himself, this one who came, lived, died, and rose again, is directing all things. That's why in verse 8, he declares, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. That's repeated twice. If it said one time, that would be sufficient, but it's repeated again. To, to remind us that even though in that Roman culture they always made room for new gods and beliefs and uh, they could coexist along with the emperor worship and other faith claims of the day, but what it did not tolerate was a sovereign for those whose allegiance was to him alone. And that's why the Christians were suffering. And I dare say, if you stand up and look people in the eye and tell them they're false worshipers for not believing in this Christ here in this Bible, the problem is most people are too timid to say it. You say you believe on him, and yet you won't stand up and declare to others that they're, they're hell-bound unless the Lord teaches them by his grace of this Christ right here in this book. This revelation right here. Go home tonight and think about it. The fact that God has been pleased to reveal this one to us who is the faithful witness that I would not know him were it not that he had been pleased to reveal himself. How humbling that is. And how bold, emboldened we should be then when we hear people kind of namby-pamby wanting to talk about all faiths are good. It's like, People say it's like going up different sides of the mountain, but in the end, we all end up at the top anyway. That's not. That was what the Romans believed. But these suffered. Think about these who suffered and died for declaring this one exclusive. You cannot believe in this faithful witness who's God's faithful witness, remember that, and at the same time give room for I don't care how close you are to them, relatives or acquaintances, people you work with and others, but 
you say, well, they don't, they don't really see it as I see it. Well, then they don't see it. And if you see it, it's because God has been pleased to reveal himself in you. He's the faithful witness. He's the one who's come and declared who the Father is and how God is just to justify and to the point of laying down his life to pay that sin debt for such wretches as we are. So this is what's important here is understanding the context. But then thirdly, seeing how far back this goes to the beginning. John here is under attack. There was a present persecution. But when you think about Christ being the faithful witness, you have to go all the way back to the garden, all the way back to Adam. Was Adam a faithful witness? No. He was put in the garden, and uh, he was given that garden to tend to, but when he was tempted, he fell. He's anything but a faithful witness. And as part of that judgment, if you go back there to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, see, this is where this all begins. What's this fight all about? Well, it's declared back here where the Lord said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. So the Lord purposed that there be enmity between the seed of the woman, which is Christ. So even back then, he was declared to be that faithful witness who was to come. In contrast with Adam, Adam had fallen and plunged his race into condemnation. But God purposed there be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And that's what all the conflicts throughout Scripture are about. There's the seed of the woman, which is Christ, and that's the one we look for. That's who's John, who John is declaring here as that faithful witness of whom the, the Scriptures spoke. But what was he, why was he suffering persecution along with the rest of the church at that time? Well, it was because of the seed of the serpent. Antichrist. There's only two spirits in the world. It's either the spirit of Christ or the spirit of Antichrist. And unless God has been pleased by his grace to teach a sinner concerning this faithful witness whose word is truth and trustworthy, then you are Antichrist. You stand opposed to. I don't care how moral you think you are or how religious you think you are or how much good you think you're doing, you're still of the seed of the serpent unless the Lord has already paid your sin debt and will in time bring you to Christ. And so throughout Scripture, and had we the time, we would do that. We've been doing that. As we go through the Scriptures, what we're doing is we're on the trail of this faithful witness. We want to hear his word. We don't want man's word. And whereas Adam fell in his mandate to rule over creation at that time, 
Yet here is now one who has come into this world who did not fail and uh, has served faithfully his father. And because of that, the father is pleased to give life to every one of his race or his seed. Christ is that true witness. He's the true Israel. And uh, he's the faithful one throughout Scripture. If you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 22, I'd referred to this portion early, but I want you to see it here. Just one verse in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 22. Notice, for as in Adam all die. That's all that Adam could ever give to his race was death. By one man sin entered the world and uh, death passed upon all men for all did sin. All have sinned, all did sin. When Adam died, they died. But here it says, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Here's where we need the wisdom of the Lord in reading these scriptures. It doesn't say even so in Christ shall all, everyone be made alive, but all in Christ. That's the context. Just as in Adam all died, all of his race died, so now in Christ, all that are in Christ, that have been given to Christ, for whom Christ came and paid the sin debt, shall be made alive. When he rose from the grave, they arose with him, and in time the Spirit of God reveals him in them, and they're made alive in their souls, but every man in his own order, it says in verse 23. Notice, Christ the first fruit. He's the first begotten among the dead, and afterward they that are Christ at his coming. There's that hope that we have, that even as Christ raised from the grave, so if he has paid our sin debt, we shall be raised with him. So these were dark days looming on the horizon for John's audience. And from their perspective, it might have seemed as if the Roman emperor and the Roman gods, little G-O-D-S, were supreme and reigning on the world's throne. I think some people have that idea today. I hear them talking as if Satan is the god of this world and running things. He's not. He was defeated when Christ died. Remember Genesis 3.15, that's when his head was crushed. That's where the venom is on behalf of his people. But it's a reminder in times of darkness, and yes, in even utter moral decay as we talk about it. We think things are worse today than they've ever been, but you go back and read Genesis chapter 6 when the Lord destroyed the world the first time with water, the flood, it says there that uh, the imaginations of the heart of those in that day were only evil continually. We still have the same heart. It's just that maybe today with media and other means that it is more exposed than it was back then, but it's still the same darkness, same decay, same wretchedness, which means then against that backdrop how vital it is to have Christ as the faithful witness, faithful to his Father, having completed all that the Father gave him to do for the salvation 
of his people. And if we're one of his, therein we rejoice. It's in the faithfulness of Christ. We're justified by the faith of Christ is the way it's put there in Galatians. Not our faith in Christ, but by the faithfulness of Christ. Well, what was his faithfulness? He was faithful unto death, even the death of the cross. And uh, if we live today in him, it's a blessing because of his grace towards sinners such as we are. Well, I hope that's helpful, a lot to that word. But uh, may the Lord himself give us clarity and uh, beauty in seeing Christ as that faithful witness. Let's take our hymn book and turn to hymn number 300. More secure is no one ever than the loved ones of the Savior. More secure is no one ever than the loved ones of the Savior. Not yon star on high abiding, nor the bird in home nest hiding. God his own doth tend and nourish, in his holy courts they flourish. Like a father kind he spares them, in his loving arms he bears them. Neither life nor death can ever from the Lord his children sever. For his love and deep compassion comforts them in tribulation. Little flock to joy then yield thee, Jacob's God will ever shield thee. Rest secure with this defender, at his will all foes surrender. What he takes or what he gives us, shows the Father's love so precious. We may trust his purpose wholly, tis his children's welfare slowly. Amen. All right. With that, we will be dismissed. Look forward to the next time. Lord willing.